Welcome to episode 57 of Frank Reactions, the show where we help you profit from the digital era through better customer experiences online and off. My name is Tema Frank. This is also the first episode of 2016, and I hope you had a fabulous break. I hope you got a break. My break was sort of a mixed one. I spent a lot of it writing, and for once in my life, I actually accomplished one of my New Year's resolutions, which was to finish the full first draft of my book, People Shock, Why People Matter More Than Ever in the Digital Era and What That Means for Your Business. I was determined to get that completely finished by the end of 2015, and I've done so. Yay! Now there's a lot of editing and production to come, but hopefully the book will be out in the next three or four months. If you're interested, actually, in being on the early notification list for when it is ready to roll, just send me an email saying so at Tema, T-E-M as in marketing A, at frankreactions.com, or just uh, send me a tweet at Tema Frank. The book, for those of you who haven't already heard me talking about it, discusses what I call the 3P profit formula of promise, people, and processes. And today's guest Dennis Malachuk, who is the CEO and president of a manufacturing company called Dynatronics, has moved his manufacturing company to a results-only work environment, sometimes known as ROW, a term that you'll hear him mention quite a few times in the interview. And that switch has totally changed how they treat those three Ps. It's changed how they treat people, how they handle processes, and as a result, it has let them offer a much more compelling promise to recruit and retain the best employees. Enjoy the interview and I will chat with you briefly at the end of it. Dennis Molichek and with Dynatronics, a manufacturing company in Amory, Wisconsin. Um, we manufacture electronic equipment, specifically power supplies used in the uh, semiconductor uh, manufacturing world. And uh, we have about 50 employees and um, we are located about 70 miles northeast of the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area, and our little town was only 2,500 people, so we're a small town shop and family-owned business in in the middle of nowhere. And when was the business founded? Officially 1971. And so when did you join the company? Started in 2004, I believe, yeah. (laughs) And what was your background before? Um, I was actually a customer of Dynatronics. I was actually running a manufacturing facility in the St. Paul metro area, and uh, I was actually using Dynatronics equipment. So I've I've known them for many years, long before I became working for them. Okay. When you started working with the company, what did you discover, and what ultimately led you to conclude that some things needed to change? Um, I'd say the company was very, very traditional. Um, It was run like a family business. Um, it was just a straight from the book, old school manufacturing facility. As far as you know, employees were time clock oriented. You know, it was just a Monday through Friday business, and it was just your, all your classic pre-row type stuff. And uh, we needed to be. You know, we're in the high tech electronics world, and we needed to become more creative and get things done. To, as our markets became global instead of just U.S. based. And you needed a way to um, serve the entire world, not just the continental United States. So things had to change. So you were facing more intense competition globally as well then from global competitors. Yeah, that's that's happening. Yes, very true. Okay. When you decided that some things had to change, what did you try first? Did you try anything before you contacted the uh, 
row people. Well, you're asking me a question a long time. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we're always trying new things. I mean, I don't think we were, you know, once I, you know, there was always small experimental things as far as, um, you know, just call it the policies of the company, um, the way vacation was handled and the way overtime and travel and all that kind of stuff was adjusted. Um, you know, the real credit I have to give to is our insurance broker, the company that does our health and medical insurance and stuff like that, a company called J.A. Conner out in New Richmond, about 20 miles away from here, and they went row. Now, they were a smaller company. They had about 15, maybe 20 people in a, in a service-based organization, not manufacturing, but um, they tr- they did the row thing, we'll call it, and uh, with, with great success, and that really piqued my interest because I spoke in depth with the owner about why they did it and what they were doing and what the results were. And it just seemed like something seemed logical that we should be the first and we should try it also. Tell me a little bit about Roe and how you went about trying to implement that in your organization. The first step was in-depth conversations with J.A. Counter, and then I actually went to J.A. Counter and met with their operations manager and went through some details, you know, trying to give me some statistics, you know. It's easy to say this is great, this is bad, but show me the numbers, right? And it, what, what, what was interesting was, I don't have them in front of me, I'm sorry, but the numbers they were tracking as far as, you know, how employees were getting their projects. And, you know, what were they getting for results? And it was all in the positive. So um, so I actually had a meeting with my board my board of directors and my my officers, I'll say that way. And we sat down and kind of just, just discussed it in general. Like, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? How are we going to be better 10 years from now or five years from now? And to be honest, nobody said no. <laughs> so we uh, brought... Um, Callie Ressler out, who she the founder or owner of Roe, who's also, I can't think of the name of her company off the top of my head, it's not Roe. <laughs> and uh, so Callie actually came out and spoke to my my management team, and everybody's kind of not looking around, just kind of nodding at each other. There's always going to be one or two naysayers in the group, but they all just kind of, oh, nah, give it a try, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we did it, and uh, so in August of 2012, we actually went through the training, and we had to we had to split it up into two groups. We couldn't we didn't have a big enough conference room to put all 50 or 60 people in one room, so we did it in two different sessions, but over the same week, and uh, that was our kickoff point. And so, what does the training involve? You know, a lot of it was just you know, breaking old stereotypes. You know, just what they call sludge. Um, you know, just you know, just just the traditional, you know, the simplest one was, you know, somebody comes into work at 8.05, somebody say, oh, you're late today. And, you know, that, and that happened a lot. I'll be honest, I was probably one of them doing it, too. Like, oh, you're early. What's even described as even was worse is telling somebody you're here early. <laughs> like, well, you know, I, did, I thought it was a compliment to tell somebody, yeah, you're here early, but you learn, once you start thinking in a different manner, the way Roe teaches you, you realize it's time doesn't matter and the result does. And uh, so there's a lot of just, a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And then there was more training into just how to send emails out, what to say in them if you're going to be gone or absent or wherever you're going to be or whatever, you know, and uh, just things like that. And um, and for us, it was a, it was a, you know, the hardest part of training was we really had, I call it, we have two companies here. Um, we have a manufacturing group that literally works on the floor and builds our products all day. And then you have 
you know, this, basically the salaried exempt staff. They have a whole large, very large staff of engineers and sales and customer support type people and administrative. So really about half people are hourly manufacturing and the other half are salaried exempts that, you know, in some way or shape or form are already practicing role. Um, but for the holiday group, it was, it was really an eye-opener to forum. So that, the training was really interesting to sit and listen to the hourly group. Well, it's interesting because, you know, when I think about it, in a manufacturing operation, it should be relatively straightforward to set the results that you need people to accomplish because you've got specific things you're building and specific timelines to meet. So the, But the big challenge there is breaking an old you know, eight to four or whatever it was mentality. So let's start by talking about there. And then I'd like to talk a little bit more about the office staff and how that worked. I'll back up there. The hourly for the production floor, everybody had it in their head that Roe was working from home. Roe was working <laughs> from fishing boat. That wasn't that, but to their defense, you know, we, we announced what we were going to do for training and the training didn't take place for a month. So a lot of people went on their computers or phones and, or I should say computers back then, we really had smartphones back then, yeah, but it just Googled row, right? And what is it, what, if you do that, what does it show you? It shows you a guy working from his deer stand. It shows you a guy working from his fishing boat, you know, or working in his pajamas. That's what it, that's what the internet tells them it is. So when they came in, they came into training thinking, they're going to teach me how to work at home. <laughs> you know? That's going to be hard to do without the equipment. <laughs> well, that's, that's the problem with technology, right? <laughs> it, 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 that became gospel right away, right? Well, this is going to be, we can all work from home. Well, not really, because we still have manufacturing. I can't just take a circuit board machine and move it to your house, you know? Um, but, so we had to get over that stereotype right away, but the manufacturing group. The other side of it was, you know, they, they understood the concept that, you know, we have, we have a production schedule, we have deadlines to meet, we have customers to service by certain dates, and they understood that, but what they could not get through their head was, and I still have, I'll say 50% of the people still struggle with this is, let's say at the 38th hour of your work week, you're all done for the week. You've met all your requirements. Mm-hmm. You can go home <laughs> and pay for 40 hours. And that still bothers a lot of people. Like, well, I wasn't there. How can you be paying me? Really? And, and I just, I, I, it took a, a while to kindly remind them that I need this product shipped by Friday or whatever day and it needs to ship by. As long as it ships, I mean, you're done. Yeah. And, uh, I, I used what I used, told them a lot was for me. I, I, said, I grew up on a farm, right? And if I had 600 acres of corn to plant, I didn't sit out in the field when I was done planting. <laughs> if it was only three in the afternoon, home, right? That's a great analogy. Um, if you are focused on, you know, saying basically, okay, as long as you get the product done and shipped on time, you can go home when you're done. Is there a risk that people will do things in a slapshot way just to make it faster? You know, that's our that's just part of our process. We have a complete test and checkout process. You know, if we test all our equipment and, and, and sh- could somebody do that? Sure, but they won't do it twice. Cause we're <laughs> <a teacher. laughs> um, and we trace, we have part traceability back to every single operator who built it. And, you know, we, we do quality trends. We're already trend- checking all that stuff anyway. So Okay. We don't know for many, many years who's building what. They're human. You know, we understand that. So tell me about the reactions. I mean, once they got over the fact that they couldn't do factory work from home, how did how did they react? I mean, you've said that some of them... We, we really can't do the factory. Now, the hourly side, no. We, we, they still don't. 
they don't work from home. They they have to physically be here to do their work. But but we allow them to do, you know, like you said, get the work done when you want to. So and how does that work? A couple of them just simply went to what we probably traditionally call flex scheduling, you know, kind of went on their own schedule. Um, we had to go. We had to go very in depth on the whole safety issue. You know, you can't. There's still certain. You still can't. You still can't. You can't just start breaking safety rules just because you're here at midnight or something like that. Right. You, know, you have to still follow all those rules. And for the most part, um, people adjusted pretty quickly to it. Um, now, I, I, the other thing we had to maybe to back up a little too is, you know, we tell people it also goes the other way. You know, if it comes Friday afternoon and a product needs to ship and you're not done, you don't leave. Right. You know? So it's not just all about leaving early. It's about getting getting the job done, right? Now, what about if there are interdependencies? If one person needs to do something before the next person can, or if more than one person needs to collaborate on something, is it up to them then to work out a schedule that's going to work for everybody? How does that go? You know, that was already going on naturally. Um, we're not that big a shop. Um, people could have about five or six little cells out there. People kind of are little, these little, little mini teams out there. And so that was already happening. So that really didn't, we weren't too concerned about that. And it proved true. We didn't have, it just was not an issue. So let's just move to the office staff a little bit. I mean, it's certainly true that people at sort of the more senior professional levels are accustomed to having a more flexible working arrangement, although typically that ends up being very long hours. But um, a lot of, you know, support staff, I'm thinking, would probably be more accustomed to a regular schedule. And also, one of the things that I've wondered about with Roe is often with administrative staff or salaried staff, even at professional levels, how do you set the right kind of results that you're looking for? Because it's not as obvious as getting a product done. Yeah, um, well, again, so of our salaried exempt staff, well over half, maybe three-fourths of them are in our engineering group. So they're really they're really project-based. You know, they, they have, you know, when we take an order from a customer, we have a quoted lead time, and in that time we say, okay, we we allowed three weeks for engineering and four weeks to build, to buy parts, and three weeks to build it and test it and ship it, right? Okay. They know their deadline. So the only, what you, I think you're referring to more would be the, um, you know, like the sales group and stuff, because they're really not on. They're not, but again, they get measured by their result, right? They have they get a, they got a quota to meet as far as a budgeted order entry number, and if they're meeting it, great. If they're not, we're already we were addressing that anyway. So row just became a. But what about like said, what about support staff? What about admin staff? Well, we only have a couple. I have an IT person and an accountant and myself. There's only three of us. <laughs> Um, so, and again, accounting is on, you know, we have payroll every two weeks and accounts payable or due every week. And so again, they're on a schedule, um, for the most part. And whether it gets done on Wednesdays or Thursdays, I don't care, right? It's, you know, it's again, get it done each week. So. Cause one thing that I think would scare a lot of companies, and I guess because you had already been in business for a while, you knew that, let's say that amount of payroll and accounting was roughly, let's say a full-time job. But if you were starting something new and you've got no idea how much time it would take, how do you determine what are appropriate results? Because the way the system works, right, is you don't keep track of hours or vacation time. It's up to them as long as they get the job done. So how do you know what's a realistic output level? Um, for a newbie, that's a really good question. <laughs> we already kind of had a baseline. You know, I, I guess... 
I guess what my answer to that would be just, you know, in just human nature, if somebody's being overworked, you know, you'll know it because they'll tell you, and if they're being underworked, you'll notice it because they'll be doing other things. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. If was, I guess I never really thought about it that way, but it, it just balances out. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So then the way row works, if you see, let's say, that suddenly somebody who you thought had a full-time job suddenly is able to basically work one less day a week, do you start thinking, hmm, maybe we're overpaying them or maybe they are they should be doing a well, bunch of other stuff? Yeah, we, have, we assign more tasks. There's never a shortage of tasks around here. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that has happened. I mean, people... Job, we'll say job description is the scope is broadened a little just because we learn this kind of stuff. And you learn what's important, what's not important, too. You know, people were just doing stuff to fill time or whatever you call it. You know. Oh, that's a really good point. So you ended up looking at some of the processes as part of this. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So what were the biggest challenges in, in getting it going and, and in keeping it working? Well, again, I'll, I'll try to say two ways. One, for the salaried staff, you know, just more of enabling the technology. You remember back in 2012, tablets were a brand new thing. You know, Wi-Fi still wasn't really that prevalent. I mean, it is today. We don't even think about it. But so, um, you know, we, a lot of people, you know, we the changes we had to make, everybody, a lot of people had desktop computers. We changed them to laptops, mm-hmm. you know, for the power so they can be mobile. And um, you know, we, I don't know where you're calling me from, but up here in Wisconsin, we get bad winters up here. <laughs> I'm in Canada, so the ours are worse. <laughs> where are you at? What part of Canada? Uh, in Alberta, so north. Oh, you're way up there. Okay. Yes. <laughs> we, have, we have customers in Toronto, but they're actually south of us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but um, you know, just enabling the technology to make that switch over, so that couldn't happen. I, mean, I couldn't just go out and buy 35 laptop computers immediately, but we just told everybody, you know, this is what our plan is as we go, we'll flush these things out, and, and that's worked out really well. And, again, for the exempt stuff, you know, it was just, to me it was more about, again, for the winter time, you don't need to get up at 5 in the morning and drive to work because we've got 6 inches of snow, you got to leave an hour, just stay home and work from home, and then come in at 9 when the roads are clear, right? Or you don't come in again. Yeah. It, 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 don't waste your time on the, on the road, and so that became... And then the other thing is just just allow people to do a lot of things. I have several people. We did a post survey, and uh, people, I had one. Well, I'll never forget the one. I don't know who wrote it. Of course, they said they turned down an eight thousand dollar raise because the new company was old school, meaning wow, five o'clock, five o'clock every night. And like, no, we need because I've had a lot of people that are taking care of their. You know, like we learned the cycle of life, right? When you're younger adults, if you're married, you take care of your little kids, and then by the time you're in your mid forties, you're taking care of your parents again. You kind of never, and we have a lot of people that take care of their parents now, and this has just allowed them to do that. And and then not only with that, but just you know, kids go see your little kids, your junior high kids track me. You know, yeah. Two and a half. I don't care. Go to it. You know, <laughs> get the work done. And, you know, schedule around it. So, and we just give them, we've empowered them to do that on their own. So it's almost the point now we don't even think about it. So. For you personally, was it a difficult mental adjustment, even though you wanted to do it? You said you were probably one of those people who complained about someone being five minutes late. Yeah, I'll, I'll admit, I, uh, you know, I, I was one of those that noticed if somebody was putting in a seven-hour day instead of an eight- or nine-hour day, you know, and it, you know that kind of, I'll admit it, but you know what, it, just, it forced me to, to document everything, right, to say this is the requirement and write it down and put it in, you know, in weekly schedule or monthly schedule format and, and my managers do the same, and then it was just 
it took all that out of there, right? It didn't matter when, when it got done. So. Financially, what have the results been? Well, I can tell you this. Um, we have one product line that we've built quite a few of, and it was taking 54 man hours to build it. And three months after we implemented Row, we were down to 32 man hours. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I was right. <laughs> So that really was the eye-opener for me. I was like, okay, wait a minute here. Something was going fast. We were just too old school, right? We were just like, do this, wait for this. And now it becomes, you know, it's just it's almost like, you don't even, I'll be honest, I don't even think about it as much as outside of you calling me here. And <laughs> I don't, you don't even think about it anymore. It just becomes second nature of everything. But that was our biggest time. And then the other one, like I said in the post survey, is just the compliments we got from people about it. Yeah, I would have never in the past even have asked to go to my granddaughter's track meet or go to see my mother at the nursing home for a couple hours during the day or something like that, you know. And, you know, just stuff like that, you realize that, you know, we've got to adjust to make people want to work here. You know, cause at the end of the day, we're, we're just a factory like everybody else, and there's really nothing special that we do, so you got to keep your people. So why do you think it's so hard for so many companies to accept this idea? Because the, at the end of the day, the as a manager, you got you got to let go. You know, it, people want to be in control, and, and that's you know that's 1960s, 70s, and 80s old school. That you know it was, it was a dictatorship type. You know, hierarchy. Your, if your name was above them on the org chart, that meant you had power over them. And you got to let that go. It just it doesn't. You know, you got to look at what what you're doing for the organization. And people, that's why the upper managers like don't buy in right away. And I'll be honest, our uh, the owner of our company who. You know, he's not here on a day-to-day basis, but he was very, very against us up front. Really? Yeah, because it wasn't—it was just so out there to him that somebody could walk out the door at two in the afternoon, or be, or worse yet, be here at ten o'clock at night and, and think nothing of it. You know, he was just your traditional eight to five. <laughs> you know? So, how did you get past that with him? Um, several conversations. I'll just leave it at that. And then ultimately, he sought results, but. It's like once you saw everybody buying into it, yeah. Like oh, it was just a change, you know. I, you know, I mean, the guy right now is in his mid seventies, late seventies. Right. It was a big change in the late life for him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what advice would you offer to a company that's thinking they need to change something and considering doing it, sort of like this? Well, I think you have to have a a process or a business that, that's measurable. If it's and I know how to, it's easy, like I said, it's easy in manufacturing, right? We have, we have a schedule, we build something, we ship it, we get paid for it. It's, it's pretty simple. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you would do a, like a call center. <laughs> you know, how do you measure that? How do you how do you know somebody? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the service service business. I, I've always been manufacturing my whole life, so I can, I can clearly understand for manufacturing. But I think it'd be. Again, you, you need whatever, whatever your process is, whatever you determine as a good employee, bad employee, success or failure, you need to be able to measure that. Yeah. It's got to be quantitative. If you can do that, then row is natural. Isn't it just, it's very simple then. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Is there anything else that I should have asked you and I haven't? Um, you know, I would say, just to be honest, I mean, after our, I can't remember the three or six month survey, we had about, there were still 25% of, we'll call them doubters. Really? Okay. And exactly what Callie said would happen is over half of them are gone. They left the company. Yeah. You know, they just actually weeded themselves out. And it's kind of funny how that works. And I'll be honest, we're hiring right now, so we tell people, 
they were hiring out about this thing, and they, they give you that deer in the headlight stare right away. <laughs> What are you talking about? Then you kind of explain a little more to him, and then they see it in action, and he's like, oh, my God. I mean, I had a guy in yesterday interview, and I'll never forget him telling me, he goes, I'm a single dad, and I have a six-year-old daughter, and I have nobody to help at home, so I need something like this just so I can raise my child, right? And I'm like, you know, yeah, I said, that's the way it should be. You know, we have work to do. We get the work done. We'll pay you for doing the work, and, you know, what you do the other 16 hours a day is your call. You know? Yeah. I wrote a book uh, many years ago about Canada's Best Employers for Women, and what I found is, and what I heard from a lot of the people I interviewed, is that the attitudes in their companies about things like going to a kid's event totally changed when the boss got divorced and suddenly had responsibility for the children. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, it's okay to leave for the kid's recital. <laughs> I, I just think, big picture, this thing, the timing was perfect, just because technology was coming on board, right? In 2012, people were just starting to get smartphones, we have laptops and tablet computers and Wi-Fi. It allowed you. I mean, right now, I mean, one of the things you learn in this role thing is you don't have to be at your desk, and nobody should know if you're gone or not. If they know you're gone, you're not doing it right. Because, like right now, I, this phone you call me on is a, a B over IP phone, so I can just forward this to my cell phone. I can take this phone home and plug it into my router at home, and you call into it. You're calling my phone, which is an IP address. It's not a phone number like traditional. So nobody knows where in the world I am. And they shouldn't know. If they, if they miss you, if they need you at work, then you need to be there, right? But if they, you know, if the, you should be able to set it up where it doesn't matter where you are, you know. And it, you know, and the other thing is, I guess the other thing you probably didn't ask me about is, I know it's a lot of my, like a lot of my manager stuff. We we would email each other at, you know, nine o'clock at night. And in the past, it was like, oh, what are you doing past work? You know, working late, blah blah blah. Now it's just it's second nature, right? You just expect, you know, I got something that one in the morning from China. It's like, well, if I'm up, I answer it. You know, if I'm not, I just don't get to it the next morning. <laughs> but that kind of stuff goes on. Do you find, because one thing I hear from a lot of employees is they feel pressured if they get an email from the boss at nine at night, they feel pressured to answer it right then. Do, is that something you've had to deal with? Uh, I think that's human nature, but one of the things we learned in the, we talked about in the road training we live by is you know, it's, it's certain types of things. If you get a phone call, you're expected to meet it response. You know, if you get an email, you expect there's a response in 24 hours, right? So just because somebody emails you at 9 o'clock at night. If you, so the point was that if you're the manager and you are emailing your employee at 9 o'clock at night, you shouldn't expect an answer till the next day. Yeah. You know, if, you expect, if you expect an answer, then call them. <laughs> Until you ask that question, I didn't think about it. You know, we don't even think about that kind of stuff anymore. But. That's great. Well, it's very exciting to hear. I mean, this is the sort of thing that I've been arguing for, I guess, since I wrote that book in the 90s. You know? So it's it's wonderful to hear an example of a company where it is working. So thank you so much for your time. What I loved about this interview is that so often I talk to people about things like offering flexibility in work and measuring on results instead of hours and what I hear is, oh, well, that might be fine and dandy for people in the services, but that won't work in manufacturing where we've got factories. Well, this is yet another example of where, in fact, it can and does work in a manufacturing environment. If you are totally convinced that it can't work in your environment, please give me a call or, or send me an email because I'd really like to talk to you about that and find out what it is about your environment that makes you think that this kind of approach could not work there. It's important to learn from those who have big barriers, as well as those who've figured out how to overcome big barriers. 
If you found this podcast interesting and you have not already subscribed to the Frank Reactions podcast, please take a moment to do so. Head on over to iTunes or whatever podcast player you use and subscribe, or you can always find the other episodes at our website, frankreactions.com forward slash show. You can also make sure that you are notified when new episodes come out or when new blog posts are written simply by signing up for the newsletter, which you can do at that website as well. That's all I've got for today. Talk to you again next week. In the meantime, if you have anything you would like to say to me, I'd love to hear it. I always really value listener feedback. So please just feel free to either call me at 1-866-544-9262. If I'm not there, please leave a message. Or you can email me, Tema, T-E-M-A, at frankreactions.com. Or find me on Twitter, at Tema Frank, on LinkedIn, blah, blah, blah. And I'll give the other blah, 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 which is it really, really helps other people discover this show if you tell them about it directly. And if you put in a review on places like iTunes or Stitcher. So I'd be really grateful if you do that. And if you don't have that information handy, you can find us on iTunes simply by going to bit.ly, so B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash F-R iTunes. That's a direct link to our podcast on iTunes. Have a wonderful week. Bye. Bye.